word to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, Two years ago, I began a sermon series through the life of David, uh, and I only preach, as as many of you are aware, I only preach about one Sunday evening, maybe every six to eight weeks, and so we've been slowly plodding along uh, through the study of the life of David. In this evening's passage, we're going to watch as the newly crowned King David does something very important for the spiritual life of Israel. He seeks to return the Ark of the Covenant back to the worship of God's people after years of it being locked away. This is a scene filled with exuberance and good intentions, but good intentions and exuberance are not enough. This passage reminds us that all of our worship must recognize the holiness of our God. Listen to the reading of God's word, 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting at verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Who decides how we come to God in worship? Who decides how we come to God in worship? This has long been a a topic of discussion in churches today. Uh, Many churches are living through what we call the worship wars. Should worship be contemporary or traditional? Should it be casual or formal? Should it be guitar or organ? It was a topic of discussion during the Protestant Reformation. In 1543, John Calvin wrote a famous treatise entitled The Necessity of Reforming the Church. And so you're almost 30 years removed from the Protestant Reformation. The gospel of justification by grace alone through faith alone has spread through the land. But Calvin says, you know, that's not enough. We don't stop there at just a reformation of soteriology of how people are saved. We need to reform worship. And worship must be reformed according to Scripture. These discussions of of what we do in worship go back further than that. This morning we saw the indictment of Sardis as they were essentially just playing church but not truly worshiping. And that's something that God's people have struggled with. And so we heard as Jesus in Matthew 15 said to them, these people worship me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. 
In the Gospels, Jesus often rebuked the people for empty worship, for hollow worship. The debate even ranged to the Samaritans. They argued with Jesus, do we worship here on this mountain or with you? The Old Testament, likewise, is full of examples as the people debated and interjected their own preferences and priorities into the worship of God. Probably the most uh, famous case of that was Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons who introduced unauthorized, strange fire into worship, and they were immediately consumed by the fire of God. They were careless in their worship. But actually, the question of how we worship God and who dictates, who determines how we worship God, that goes well beyond Nadab and Abihu. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It goes back to Adam and Eve. And we need to understand this. There's a picture presented in the scriptures of the garden as an early temple. We call it a a proto-temple. And Adam was commanded in Genesis 2.15 to tend and keep the garden. It's a fascinating study. There's a book, let me commend it to you, by G.K. Beale called God Dwells Among Us about how the Garden of Eden is a reflection of the temple or the temple's a reflection of the Garden of Eden and both point forward to that future temple, that heavenly temple in the New Jerusalem. But Adam was told to tend and keep the garden. Well, in Numbers, the priests were ordered to do the same thing. It's two Hebrew words, abad and shamar. Adam's told to abad and shamar the garden. The priests are told to abad and shamar the temple, the tabernacle. In other words, we need to understand that this debate about who determines what we do in worship and how we worship is not so much a battle between men that is waged through the years, though it is, The real worship wars are between man and God about how we approach him in worship. Do we approach God in worship as he commanded or as we prefer? Scripture teaches us that God alone can regulate, can determine what we do in worship. And we, as his creation, His people, we have no right to get cute, creative, or novel in worship. We don't look at things and say, that would be a great idea. Let's try that this week in our worship. He's a holy God, and as such, He alone can determine, He alone can govern how we worship Him. In worship, we must be careful not to follow our own experiences or own devices or the patterns of our own world, but rather the pattern of worship laid out for us in Scripture. After all, worship is for God, not for us. And so for us to worship Him rightly, we must worship as He has instructed. You know, that's what this text this evening teaches us. Because God is holy God's people must worship him in the way he instructs us to, according to the scriptures. I've shared this before, but when I approach any passage of scripture, I'm asking three questions of it. What's the context? What's the content? What are the consequences? And that's what we're going to do tonight. What's the context of the Ark of the Covenant? Why does this whole thing matter? What's the background? There's a lot that we need to know. Then the content. What's actually going on in this scene? 
And then the consequences. Why does this event 3,000 years ago about a, a, a largely unknown Israelite named Uzzah who is struck down for touching the Ark of the Covenant, why does it matter to us today? How does it instruct us today? So we're going to look at those three things, context, content, consequences. So let's start with context. We need some background if we want to understand this passage, some background on the Ark of the Covenant. So rewind, this passage took place around the 9th century BC. We need to rewind uh, about four or five centuries. Let's go to the 1400s BC. After the Exodus and the subsequent failure of the Israelites to enter the Promised Land, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. During that time, per God's instructions, the people constructed the tabernacle. It was very, very precise. Everything about the tabernacle was to be according to God's command. And it was also during that time that God instructed them to construct the ark as the centerpiece of Hebrew worship. Now, I can remember being a brand new Christian, 18 years old, and hearing about the ark in the tabernacle and thinking, how in the world did they fit Noah's ark in the tabernacle? Nope, different word in Hebrew, different ark. We're speaking of the Ark of the Covenant. Ark means box, but it wasn't just any box. It was a box according to God's design. It was about 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches deep, made of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, ornately designed, beautifully constructed. The Ark was not an image of God. It was not an idol, but a symbol of God's presence with his people. Remember, these were a people who did not have the fullness of the scriptures the way we do. And even uh, what they did have, very few people had access to them. And so the Ark of the Covenant stood as a, a reminder of who God is. And the Ark was to be at the center of Israel's worship. You, you think about the temple and its design of concentric courts and everything pointed inward to the Holy of Holies. And what was in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant the significance about everything in the temple, and indeed, in a sense, everything in Old Covenant life pointed to the ark. There's a lot that the ark represents that I don't have time to get into tonight, but there's two specific things that I think are helpful for us to understand. First is rule, and second is redemption. See, the ark contained the Ten Commandments, pointing to Yahweh's rule over his people. The ark showed that the people can approach God, but they must approach God on his terms and in perfect submission to his commandments. Now, of course, any of us that has any self-awareness knows that we've broken the Ten Commandments. They actually bear witness against us. They're not a checklist of what we've done right. They testify in court against, about what we've done wrong proving that on our own we cannot stand in the presence of God because we haven't submitted to his rule in our lives. And and so the Ten Commandments there in the Ark of the Covenant shows that God looks upon us through the lens of his holiness and our sin has separated us from him. If the Ark only had the Ten Commandments, then its only message would be you are not welcome in the presence of God. But the good news is, the ark not only represented God's rule, but God's redemption, his redemptive purposes for his people. Because atop the, mer- the, the ark of the covenant was the mercy seat. 
when the priest went into the Holy of Holies, he would take the blood of a sacrifice and sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. Israel's sin had formed a barrier between them and God, but the blood of the sacrifice was a picture of redemption. In the Old Covenant, the, bo- the blood bo- came from bulls and goats. But of course, it had to be sacrificed again and again and again as a reminder that, that, that sin has not fully been washed away. It's a reminder that the consciences of men were still marred by sin. But in the New Covenant, It was Christ's blood that was shed for us. Just like the blood of the animals on the mercy seat, the blood of Christ went into the heavenly holy of holies and was sprinkled there for us. And it stands between the law of God and the presence of God for us. Through the blood of Jesus, the transgressions of God's people, the breaking of God's law, has been forgiven. When the Lord looks upon the blood of Christ, for our sakes, his wrath is satisfied. We call this propitiation, and what's really significant about that, and I want you to see Romans 3. Turn there with me while I'm talking, if you would. There's a, uh, the, Hebrew, uh, the Greek word for propitiation is halastrion. Well, in Romans 3, Paul gives us an amazing picture of this heavenly mercy seat and the redemptive work of Christ. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the law uh, tells us, that we have all sinned before God. But verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation, it's halastrion. It's the word for the top of the ark, the mercy seat. So Jesus is our mercy seat. He's the fulfillment of everything the ark represented. And so our Lord sees believers not through the lens of the law, but through the lens of the gospel and what Christ has done in our redemption. Well, with that much spiritual importance, and again, I'm barely scratching the surface of all that the Ark of the Covenant meant, with that much spiritual importance, it's not surprising that along with the Ark and instructions about how to give it were detailed instructions about how the Ark was to be handled, how it was to be treated. You know, the key, this is really the key context for tonight, is to understand the Ark couldn't just be picked up and moved by men. In fact, the Ark could not be touched at all. No human was to lay a hand on the ark of God. It was to be carried by the system of poles that were slipped through rings. And the only ones who could carry it, who could move it, were the Kohathites. Kohath was one of the sons of Levi, and God separated the family of Kohath for a specific task. You can read about this in Numbers 4 on your own, but their job, their whole duty in the religious worship of Israel 
was to take care of the sacred vessels. And they were trained and disciplined from childhood with all the rules and all the prescriptions and the meticulous details about how to handle the sacred objects, namely the ark. And the one absolute non-negotiable principle that every Kohathite had drummed into him from the time he was a child is this, never ever touch the throne of God, never touch the ark. God says in Numbers 4.15, if you touch it, you will die. Why? Because God is holy and we're not. Now, for a time, the people were obedient to God's instructions, but there came a time when the people knew not the Lord, and instead of seeing the ark as a symbol of the presence of God dwelling with his people, they saw it as a holy good luck charm, and they took it into battle against the Philistines. Now, this was common to do among the ancient peoples. The battles, wars were often seen as a test of the gods to see which god was greater. Well, our god doesn't take kindly to being tested. And so the Israelites took the ark into battle, and they were conquered by the Philistines. Read about this on your own in 1 Samuel 4 through 6. Now, the Philistines conquered the Israelites. They took the ark. They saw this as a victory, not, over, not only over their neighboring enemies, but over Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so they paraded the ark around to celebrate the victory. But everywhere the ark went, you remember what happened? Troubles followed, right? So idols were toppled down and beheaded. People got boils. Some even died where the ark went. And so after some time, the Philistines had enough sense to say, we don't want this thing around anymore, and they put it on a cart being pulled by oxen, and they head it straight out of town. And it went to the house of a man named Abinadab, where it stayed until David commissioned this recovery mission. For reference, this was back even before the reign of Saul began, and Saul reigned 40 years. And in Saul's 40 years as king, we don't know of any effort by him or the priests to return the ark to the center of Israel's worship. In other words, the religious life of Israel was tucked away in a house up in Kiriath-Jerim. But now David is king. And this is his second major act as a king. You remember we saw this last time in chapter 5. David wanted to obtain Jerusalem as the holy city for the people of God. And now in his second major act, he's determined to return the Ark of the Covenant to its central place among the people of God. That's the context. Now let's look at the content. What's going on here? David is preparing to go and take the Ark back. It only takes a couple of men to carry the Ark, but he has 30,000 of his mighty leaders from Israel gather there, plus many onlookers. David is making clear that the worship of Yahweh is the highest priority in the life of Israel. This is what we are here for. This is what we are to do. Yahweh's rule, Yahweh's redemption must be at the center of who we are. And so there's a massive gathering of the mighty men. People line the streets. They dance and sing as the procession of God's ark is coming by. Now, that's a very important point. David was a great warrior king, 
He really was, but his primary obligation wasn't to lead Israel in military conquest, but rather to seek God's face and to lead the people of Israel in seeking God's face. This is the substance of biblical religion, living life in the presence of God. And so David doesn't want to go one more day without the Ark of the Covenant being front and center in Israel's religious life. And so with great excitement, the Ark is taken from Abinadab's house. It's loaded onto a cart pulled by oxen. Where did they learn that idea? Well, that's what the Philistines had done. There's two men, Ahio and uh, Uzzah, standing guard on the sides. But then one of the oxen stumbles. The ark goes off balance, and it is about to hit the ground. What a disaster that would be. But Uzzah is there to catch it. Seems like good news, right? Except God doesn't uh, seem as appreciative as Uzzah might have thought. Verse 6, we see one of the most anticlimactic scenes in all of Scripture. Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of the Lord and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there because of the ark of God. It's a hard passage, isn't it? Uzzah was just trying to help. Shouldn't God have been grateful that the ark landed in Uzzah's hands rather than on the dirty ground. I think R.C. Sproul explains this really well. Listen to this. The presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. There was nothing about the earth that would desecrate the throne of God. The earth was lying there on the ground doing what God called earth to do, being dirt turning to dust when it's dry, turning to mud when it's mixed with water. It obeys the laws of God day in, day out, doing exactly what dirt is supposed to do. There's nothing defiling about the earth. It was of the hand of God. It was the hand of man that God had said, it shall not touch the throne. In a word, Sproul says, Uzzah broke the law of God and God killed him. Uzzah and the Israelites had no idea the holiness of the God with whom they were dealing. What does it mean that God is holy? It's very difficult to define that. And yet, the holiness of God is what we could call his core attribute. The primary uh, uh, statement about God is about his holiness, his transcendence, his magnificence. Holiness is the reality that God is higher and superior to anything in the creaturely realm. The simplest way to, to define God's holiness is to say that he is different. He is set apart. He is distinct from anything in this world. There is nothing like him in the created realm. And God isn't just holy. You know, if you're wanting to get your point across in a text message, what do you do? You do all caps, don't you? Or you do it on accident, and then people say, why are you yelling at me? In Hebrew, it wasn't all caps. There weren't bold letters or italics. The way that emphasis was given was through repetition. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, was able to glimpse the throne room of God. He sees that true heavenly mercy seat. And what does he hear the amazing angelic choir saying? 
holy? Holy, holy? Holy, holy, holy. Holy to the nth degree. You know, the Bible speaks often of God's mercy, His love, His justice, but it doesn't say He is mercy, mercy, mercy. It doesn't say He is love, love, love. It doesn't say He is justice, justice, justice. His holiness is at His essence. So that when His holiness was manifest to Isaiah, we read in Isaiah 6, 4, that at the sound of the voices of the seraphim, the doorposts, the thresholds of the very temple began to tremble. The the angels understand. They understand who they're dealing with. As they pass by him, they cover their their eyes, for, for he's too holy for them to see. But Uzzah and the people didn't understand the holiness of the God with whom they were dealing. It reminds me of the story of two men who were making their way to a reception on a rainy Washington, D.C. evening. And one had offered to share the shelter of his umbrella with a stranger who was on the way to the same event. They sloshed along, conversed, and the stranger declared his opinion that General Grant was highly overrated. Naturally, he wouldn't have said that if he had known that Grant was the one holding the umbrella over him. He acted foolishly because he didn't know with whom he was dealing. And the same was true with Uzzah, with the Israelites. Yahweh's people tend to forget what sort of God we're dealing with. He is holy, holy, holy. And we do not approach him on our terms despite what our best of intentions and how great our exuberance might be. We approach a holy God in the way that he has told us in Scripture. You know, even David didn't seem to understand that. Verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David abandoned the mission for some time. Do you get David's reaction? Can a story like this embarrass you? If you were talking to an unbeliever about it, would you have a hard time articulating the story and defending what God did here? You know, sometimes people will read a story like this and they'll say, you know, that's why I don't believe in the Bible because I don't believe in a God who would act unjustly like this. Of course, God wasn't unjust at all. He had given them warning after warning after warning in the scriptures about how they were to handle the ark. He's not the guilty one. Uzzah was. But if you think about it, it's actually stories like this that make us trust, help us to trust the Bible, the trustworthiness of the Bible, we would never have invented a God like this. We would have invented a God who we could approach in any way that we want to. But this is a God who is holy, 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 not the kind of God we would fashion for ourselves. It's really the content of this passage. God is holy, we're not. We don't worship him in just any way we want to, Because we can't comprehend the worship that a holy God deserves unless he tells us how to worship him rightly. If we're not careful, our preferences will trump his commands in worship. And we must constantly repent of that. We must worship God as he's shown us in his word. It was tragically true for Uzzah. It is no less true for us. Yes, we come to God in the fullness of the gospel. We understand things about God that Uzzah did not, that even David did not. We understand salvation by grace. Let me ask you, though, 
does God now leave us to our own devices in worship? Certainly not. In fact, as gospel-believing Christians who are well aware of our own capacity for sin, we ought to know better than anyone how untrustworthy our own hearts are. We ought to, more than anyone else, desire to worship God according to the Scriptures because we know that our hearts are deceitful above all else. And therefore, we must worship God as he commands. That's the content. What are the consequences? Let me go through several things. First, we're reminded here that worship is to be a corporate event. All the people take part in this. It only took a a couple of people. It should have taken four. David only had two moving the ark. But David has 30,000 people gather because he understands the joy of the presence of God. Let me say this, if David and the people of Israel understood that, how much more should we as the church understand that it is right and good for us to gather in the presence of God and worship? It ought to be, for the Christian, the greatest privilege of our week, of our lives, to be able to gather in worship. The, the people of Israel were excited about the return of this symbol of the presence of God in the ark. How much more should you and I be excited to gather together in the presence of the greater ark, the Lord Jesus Christ? Second, we need to see the danger of letting the world dictate what we do in worship. Scripture was very clear about how the ark was to be transported. The Kohathites were to transport it on poles that slipped through the ring so that nobody would touch it. Where did the Israelites get this idea to to use a, a cart? Certainly it was easier, but it's what the Philistines did. It worked for them. And in so doing, the people of God followed a pagan example in the worship of God. Now that sounds ridiculous to us, but isn't the church guilty of that every day? The church is constantly taking lessons from the unbelieving world about how to worship. And so you look just at the last half century, how church has gone from traditional and formal to casual and laid back. And the intention of church today in so many places is to look and feel like the world. The music looks and feels like the world's music. It is supposed to be laid back like a coffee shop in so many church settings. It's supposed to look like the world so that unbelievers can come in and feel at home. Now, I do not mean to sound insensitive at all. We rejoice to have unbelievers in worship, but worship should feel like they are stepping out of earth and into heaven because that's exactly what it is. We are being transported alongside the angels and the heavenly hosts into the holy presence of God. The world cannot comprehend that or imitate it. And therefore, the church, when we take our cues in how to worship from a pagan world, we profane the name of God. The worship of God should feel foreign to this world because you're stepping into the presence of a God who is holy, holy, holy. It's time for the church to stop taking lessons from the world about how to worship. Third, passage reminds us that exuberance is no substitute for reverence. It was an exciting moment for the people, great religious fervor. Even Uzzah's reaction to study the ark, it was was out of a moment of great excitement and jubilation, but it was presumptuous, without reverence for the holy 
vessel. Uzzah's death reminds us that when we approach God, we must do so with awe and reverence. Now, you might say, well, that was the Old Testament. What about in the New Testament? Listen to Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That's a reference back to Nadab and Abihu, their failures to worship rightly. And God's saying here, in the new covenant, you want to worship God? Worship God according to Scripture. Final consequence. David knew that for Israel to be a worshiping community, the ark must be front and center. So too for us, we must keep the greater ark, the one that the ark pointed to, the Lord Jesus Christ, front and center in all that we do. Everything that we do as a church must first and foremost point to Christ's finished work on the cross. Our duty is not merely to make moral citizens or to create a new generation of conservatives. Our duty as Christians is to live in the presence of God through Jesus Christ. That's our chief duty. We often lose sight of that. We think that the church exists for so many other reasons. Well, all of those other reasons are byproducts of the main reason, to live in the presence of Jesus Christ. If our Christianity doesn't bring us to a higher view of the holiness of God, a greater awe at the grace of God in Christ, and sweeter enjoyment of the presence of God, then we have missed the point. Everything that we do must point us to the Lord Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we praise you for the content of our, our beliefs, of, of, of the gospel, that all of us points us to Christ, our mercy seat, our propitiation, the one whose blood was sprinkled for us. And I pray that we would be a body that worships you, not as our hearts creatively come up with, but as you have instructed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your hymnals if you would. Let's stand and